If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. As we continue on in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in the latter verses of Genesis 4, uh, beginning uh, Genesis 4, 17. Genesis 4, 17. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mahujel, and Mahujel became the father of Methushel, and Methushel became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other, Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who played lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, as we consider these these few verses this morning, we'll do so under under three main points. Uh, number one, we have a tale of two genealogies. A tale of two genealogies. Point number two, participate with non-believers in the realm of common grace. Participate with non-believers in the realm of common grace. And then thirdly, Call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we saw last week how sin had crouched at the door of Cain's life. It had set its desire for him, and in fact, it mastered him. Cain murdered his brother. Adam and Eve had been banished from the garden for their sin and their labor was made toilsome and that the ground was cursed on Adam's account. And now Cain's punishment was even greater than theirs. He himself was cursed from the ground in that it would no longer yield its produce for him. And as we saw, he was cut off from the Lord's presence. We left off last week in verse 16 with Cain going out away from the presence of the Lord and dwelling in the land of Nod, which is the land of wandering to the east of Eden. Now we find in verse 17 here that Cain had a wife. Seth 
later on did, and presumably the other sons of Adam as well. And it is no great mystery or great secret where these women, these wives of the sons of Adam, came from. These women were the daughters of Adam and Eve, either perhaps their direct daughter or perhaps by now one of their granddaughters. We can't say for sure. We saw back in chapter 3, verse 20, that Adam had called his wife's name Eve because she would be the mother of all living. And that certainly includes the wife of Cain, the wife of Seth, and so on. All human beings are descended from Adam and Eve, from the one man the Lord made every nation of men. And though the marriage of such a close relative would later be forbidden both by the law of God and by the law of men, Nevertheless, it was not so at the very beginning. One writer expressed it this way and said that sin had not yet broken down the physical and mental vigor of the race as it did in the course of time. Mankind still possessed in large measure its original vigor with which the race had been endowed by the Creator. Consequently, in that early period, for a man to marry his sister was neither wrong nor dangerous. Marriage of brother and sister had not such evil results as would occur at the present day. And so Cain marries his sister, and they have a child, and that child's name is Enoch. And then what we find, in the, starting in verse 17, is the beginnings of human civilization. Cain built a city. And when we read city here, we should not be thinking New York or London or perhaps, for that matter, not even Odenton or Gambrels. We should be thinking a settlement. Indeed, the word could be translated town. And he named the city after his son, after his son Enoch. And then we see the lineage from there. Enoch, as we see in verse 18, had a son named Irad. Irad had a son named Mahujel. Mahujel had a son named Methushel. And Methuselah had a son named Lamech. And if you, count, if you count the generations starting at Adam, you have Adam, Cain, Enoch, Irad, Mahujel, Methuselah, and Lamech. There's seven, seven generations there. Wickedness runs its course over time. Sin begets sin. Sin is punished with more sin. And what we end up here in this seventh generation with Lamech is we see wickedness kind of brought to a whole new level. One writer observed that genealogies are designed to celebrate life and accomplishment by contrace, uh, tracing the continuation of family from one ancestor to the next. But Cain's involves the cessation of life, as represented by the murderers, Cain and Lamech. Now, we'll talk about Lamech more here in a moment, but... Before we do, it might be helpful to look forward to Genesis 5 and look at what the seventh generation on the other side of the family looks like. In Genesis 5, we see the line traced from Adam through Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, and then seventh is Enoch. Enoch, as we know, was a godly man. He walked with God and was no more because God took him. And Lord willing, we'll speak more of, of Enoch in the future. But for now, just notice the vast difference between these two lines. In the line of Cain, the seventh generation is Lamech, a very ungodly man. In the line of Seth, we get to Enoch, who is a godly man. Now, what was this wickedness of Lamech? Well, for one, he is the first recorded 
polygamist. He took two wives for himself. Now, we don't know if he was, in fact, the first polygamist, but his polygamy is the first of which we have any record. And, of course, this is a violation of the marriage ordinance as given by God. God made one woman for Adam. The two were to become one flesh. But in the seventh generation from Adam down the line of Cain, restraint appears to have been thrown off. And this man took two wives for himself, Ada and Zillah. And other than Eve, these are the first two women whose names are mentioned in the Bible. And these two women gave birth to three men. Ada's sons are Jabal and Jubal. Jabal, said to be the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Jubal, said to be the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. And when we read the word father here, we need to think father not necessarily in the sense that his kids did what he did, but rather father in the sense of inventor or originator, kind of like George Washington was the father of his country. If you're familiar with history, you'll know that George Washington had no actual children of his own. But nevertheless, he is called the the father of his country in the sense of the originator of his country. And similarly, the third son, son of Zillah, is Tubal-Cain. It's a forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And apparently also Tubal-Cain is a pioneer in his field. And Tubal-Cain's sister is Naama, whose name means pleasant. So the point here is that we're beginning to see societal and cultural advances. It's difficult to say for sure, but Jabel may have been the inventor of the tent. We know that he was not the first to keep livestock because Abel, generations earlier, had been a keeper of the flocks. But I think the idea at least seems to be that that Jabel led the way in developing uh, the keeping of livestock in a more nomadic fashion. You pasture your herd or your flock in an area for a while, and then when the grazing dries up, you can pack up and strike the tent and move ahead to greener pastures. This would be a more difficult enterprise if you had to build a new house every few weeks or once a week as you, as you had to move along and follow the flocks to greener pastures. But now with the advent of the tent, moving on after the livestock have grazed an area down, is not that big of a deal. You strike the tent, you pack up, drive the herd a few miles further on, find some green grass and water, pitch your tent, set up camp, and you're all set. This invention of of Jabel, though it seems maybe very, very simple to us, revolutionized the agricultural practice at the time. Perhaps along with the innovation of the tent and the nomadic uh, keeping of of livestock. There may have been uh, some innovations in terms of animal husbandry uh, in which uh, Jabel was was helpful. We don't know too many of the details. Suffice it to say, this this man was, was leading the way as a pioneer with respect to agriculture. And meanwhile, his brother Jubal was making music. He is the musical pioneer and inventor, it seems, of instruments themselves. And his influence expanded both into stringed instruments, the lyre, and also into wind instruments, the pipe. And so this man is the music man of his day, and others followed in his wake. He is the father of those who play the pipe and the lyre. And then their half-brother is Tubal-Cain, master of the forge and maker of instruments of bronze and iron. And it is thought by some that the Romans derived the name of Vulcan, 
who is, in their mythology, the god of fire, the god of metalworking, the god of the forge, that they derived his name from Tubal-Cain. And you can see some of the, the verbal similarities, at least. And meanwhile, Tubal-Cain's sister is Naama, pleasant, seemingly a beautiful woman. And so these are not wild cavemen. These are intelligent, enterprising people who are made in the image of God, who are exercising dominion over creation, as well they should be. They are making new inventions and developing new technologies. Agriculture, the arts, and metallurgy are in their early beginnings. And that, in and of itself, is a good thing. Better farming practices are just that. They are better. Music is pleasing to the ear and to the mind. Or maybe we should say, at least it can be. Metalworking and the instruments which are developed through metalworking are good. And this holds true whether the developers of that technology were good men or evil men. The main question in regard to the technology is whether the technology will be used for good or for evil. And so this man, their father, father of these boys, is, is Lamech. He's a polygamist, specifically a bigamist. has two wives. And he is also prone to violence. Interpreters and translators of this text are not entirely agreed as to what exactly is being conveyed in this poetic utterance which he makes to his wives. He says to them, verses 23 and 24, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, if you have a, a copy of the uh, New American Standard, you'll notice uh, from the footnote that it's not entirely clear as to whether Lamech is recounting a history of something that has happened. I have killed. This has already happened. This is a historical fact or whether he is saying what he would do if he were attacked. I kill is a possible translation in the sense of I will kill. If somebody attacks me or strikes me, I'll kill him. One way or the other, whichever way you may be inclined to take it, it's very clear that these are the words of a man who at the very least is prone to terrible violence and he's also terribly proud. Far from the, the lex Talionis, the, the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, punishment in kind, this man is willing to kill and perhaps has already killed a man for merely wounding him, for striking him. And he's not confessing this as a fault, as if this is something blameworthy in him. For him, this is a badge of honor. And he boasts about it there in verse 25. He says, if Cain is avenged sevenfold, that is what the Lord said, that if, uh, that if anyone killed Cain, he would be uh, punished sevenfold. Lamech says of himself, then Lamech, 77-fold. Now, in saying that, Lamech is either presumptuously presuming upon the providence of God to punish and avenge him, uh, punish anyone, and therefore avenge Lamech should anyone attack him, or... And I think this is more likely. I think he's claiming that he can stand on his own two feet and he can avenge himself for anyone who comes after him. He can avenge himself 77-fold. He's a wild, murderous man. This 
sword song, as it has been called, seems to be the boast of a man who was trusting in his own strength and his own violent skill rather than in the Lord. You contrast that with what the psalmist says in Psalm 44, verses 6 through 8. The psalmist says, For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted all day long, and we give thanks to your name forever. That's the godly outlook. It's trusting in the Lord. The outlook of Lamech appears to be the exact opposite. He appears to trust in himself and the violence that he can inflict upon anyone who attacks him. Someone went so far as to refer to this as one of the most ungodly pieces ever written. Now this, my friends, is where the human race had come to in only seven generations from creation. A friend of mine made the observation to me years ago that when a family gets a couple generations away from the gospel, that people get hard. And I think what my friend was trying to say was that when a family rejects the truth of God, there's a generational impact that occurs. Maybe the first generation to reject the truth had a, a decent Christian upbringing, but then just turned their backs on it. They, are le- they at least are going to be influenced by the truth, even if they reject it, and maybe they'll retain some parts of the truth of God. Maybe they thought biblical rules, the moral aspects of the Ten Commandments are fundamentally uh, wholesome, but they just couldn't bring themselves to believe that Jesus really died on the cross and rose again to save sinners. Some decades ago, 70 or 80 years ago in Britain, uh, people were talking about wanting to retain Christian morality while at the same time not holding on to Christian belief. They felt, well, we're modern people, we can't believe in Jesus and his death and resurrection and so on, but we like Christian morality, so let's try to hold on to that, but we can't, we can't deal with, with Christian belief. Well, track that some decades down the road, and we see that that's, that's not tenable ground. This, this doesn't work. And maybe in the, the second generation, after you have this, this first generation who rejects the gospel, maybe in the second generation, kids go to Sunday school because mom and dad let them go with grandma and grandpa or something like that. And then maybe the third generation doesn't even get that much exposure to the truth of God. And with less exposure to the truth, the lives of those in that situation then end up even worse. And hence, the hardened lives, hardened consciences, and so on. And this is the way that, that things often work out. Now, by the grace of God, this is not always the case, but there are patterns here, and those patterns form a warning. And we see the warning here in our text as we see this generational demise that took place from Cain down to Lamech. But the text does make this contrast. This first point, of course, is the tale of two genealogies, not just one. And so this, this wicked line of Cain then is contrasted with a godly genealogy. Now, the bulk of that is in chapter 5, but we do see the, the beginnings of it there in verses 25 and 26 of chapter 4. We see the, the birth of Seth. Seth is born after the murder of righteous Abel. In fact, Eve views him as a replacement for Abel. And so she says, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel. For Cain killed him. And then we see in verse 26 the birth of Seth's son, Enosh. And the, the name Enosh seems to indicate weakness. Perhaps as if Seth is, is recognizing that we're weak, weak people. 
And then right there at the end of the chapter, we read these words. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, in that final phrase, we should note that our English translations supply the word men or the word people, as the ESV does. But that word is not there in the original. A strict translation of that final phrase of verse 26 would be something like, then people began, excuse me, then began to call upon the name of the Lord, or perhaps then began to call by the name of the Lord. And thus this final phrase of verse 26 is seen, and I think rightly so, as indicating the religious nature of this line of Seth. That is, these people were godly. These were people who either called upon the name of the Lord in the sense of trusting him, praying to him, calling out to him, or these were people who were called by the name of the Lord, that they were called the Lord's people. They were called sons of God as opposed to sons of men. And so we have these, these two lines, this ungodly line of Cain culminating in Lamech and his sons, and then connected with that lineage of Cain, we have the beginnings of civilization. Cain founds the first city, and we see the development of technology and the arts. And then on the other hand, we have the beginning of the godly line of Seth and the beginning of public worship or of people uh, beginning to call themselves by the name of the Lord. Now, what should, we, what should we glean from this then? How should we, how should we apply these historical facts to, to our lives as believers? Well, this brings us to our second point, which is participate with non-believers in the realm of common grace. And we do see God's common grace here. Cain, the cursed, was the builder of the first city. One preacher put it this way, and he said, Cursed and driven from the ground... Cain founds the first city, and in doing so, founds human civilization and urban culture, perhaps an obvious alternative to a life of farming and agriculture was to create urban culture. Now, if you're from a a rural background like me, and you hear something like that, the wheels may start turning in your mind, and the light bulbs might start flashing, and you're thinking, yeah, Absolutely, this confirms everything that I've thought about cities. This confirms what I've been taught about cities. Just trace them back to their origin. Cain the Cursed is the originator of urban culture. This is how it started. We see how it's going. This is not, this can't end too well. Rotten in the root, rotten in the fruit. And just as an aside, I can remember that when I first moved to Linthicum in 2009, I was having a conversation with Mark Brooks, and I I said in that conversation something about living in the city. And Mark said to me, well, you don't live in the city. And I didn't say this, but I was thinking at the time, man, you, you don't understand. <laughs> that seemed like at the time a pretty, a pretty subtle distinction to me. But 14 years down the line, now I can, I can see what Mark was talking about. I get it. I agree with him. It makes sense. But what can we say about city life and urban culture in light of its founder? Well, it's certainly true. There's a lot of crime and a lot of sin that is committed in cities. There's no question about that. But if crime in a city seems more concentrated or more intense than in rural areas, part of what we need to keep in mind is that in a city, there's just a higher concentration of sinners per square mile, if you will, than in rural areas. 
Now, there may be other factors in play. Maybe it's the fact that given that higher concentration, people are in greater contact with one another, creating perhaps more frequent occasions for sinning against one another. And rural areas, uh, just like cities, have their share of good folks and bad folks. There are small towns 15 or 20 miles uh, from where I grew up that had multiple murders take place 30 years ago when I was growing up. And if you have three to five murders in a town of only a few hundred people, that puts the, that puts the murders per capita pretty high, and I would say even higher than that of crime-ridden major cities. And so what this means is that cities are not morally bad and rural areas are not morally good and vice versa. Even though Cain built the first city of which we have record, this doesn't mean that cities are bad. Not at all. Even though it was wicked Cain who did the first city building, the scriptures tell us that when the new heavens and the new earth come into being, that there will be a city which comes down out of heaven from God being made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. According to Hebrews 11.10, this was the city that Abraham was looking for, or he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The seed of the, city, the, seed of the serpent built the first city, but God builds the last city, and it will be good. And therefore, all of Abraham's children... All who belong to Christ are looking for and heading toward that same city. This is why we find in Hebrews 13, 14, that here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking that city which is to come. Oh, I love the rural life, but I'm seeking a city, and I hope that you are too. And what is true in regard to the development of urban culture holds true also in regard to these other developments in civilization that we see in this chapter. Though we're not told anything in particular concerning the moral characteristics of Jabal, Jubal, and, and Tubal-Cain, given who their father is, Lamech, and given the, the general tenor of the text and the contrast that Moses seems to be making here between the line of Cain and then the line of Seth, I think it seems reasonable to suppose that these men are not godly men. But nevertheless, even assuming that that is true, it does not follow that their technology or the progressive developments which they have achieved are to be shunned. Far from it, inasmuch as these men were taking dominion over creation and learning how to utilize the creation for the good of the human race, we can utilize their developments. Abraham and the patriarch followed in the steps of Jabel. They dwelt in tents. They tended livestock. We know from Acts chapter 18 that the Apostle Paul, along with Priscilla and Aquila, were tent makers. Tents had their origin way back here. And Apostle Paul was making tents to help him, to help support himself so that he could proclaim the gospel. We don't know what kinds of songs Jubal was singing here in Genesis 4, what kinds of songs he was playing. But what we find in Psalm 150 is the appropriation of both stringed instruments and wind instruments for the worship of God. And so in Psalm 150, we read, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty expanse. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. 
Praise Him with the trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp and lyre. Praise Him with timbrel and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with loud cymbals. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so what we see here is that the Lord takes these things that were developed by Jubal and he uses them for his own glory as people employ them to his praise and glory. And the same goes for the developments at the forge of Tubal Cain. Certainly metallic instruments have been used by evil men to perpetrate great evils, murders, war crimes, and the like. But it is equally true that metal has been used to prevent great evils and to perform great good. And even those things that were produced by evil men may be used by the godly for the purpose of good. You'll recall from 1 Samuel 21 that when David was on the run from King Saul, he came to Ahimelech, the priest there at Nob, and he got bread uh, for himself, the, the bread of the presence, which was usually only lawful for the priests to eat. And before he left Nob, he said to Ahimelech the priest, Now is there not a sword or a spear on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. And Ahimelech said to David, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. For David, it didn't matter that Tubal-Cain developed the metallic arts. It didn't matter that the only sword on hand had been Goliath's and probably made in the forge of an idolatrous Philistine blacksmith and probably used by Goliath for ungodly purposes. David still wanted that sword in case Saul or his henchmen caught up with him. And in all of this, we see that there is, at least to a very large extent, a a certain moral neutrality to technology and civilizational advances. That is to say, as a general rule, technology and civilizational advancements are neither necessarily good nor necessarily bad. Now, you may be able to think of an example to the contrary, and I might agree with you, but I'm just speaking generally that this comes down to what purpose are you using the technology for? Computers can be used to read good books, to write sermons, to listen to biblical lectures, to talk with your family at Christmas time. Computers can also be used to spread untrue, unhelpful, and hateful things on social media, to look at or read things that you shouldn't be looking at or reading. The same holds true for smartphones, airplanes, cars, guns, buildings, etc. You can use them for good. You can also use them for bad. And therefore, as Christians, we can and should study and develop technology and contribute to the advancement of civilization. J. Gresham Machen put it this way probably 110 years ago or so. He said, instead of destroying the arts and sciences or being indifferent to them, let us cultivate them with the enthusiasm of the various humanists, but at the same time consecrate them to the service of our God Instead of stifling the pleasures afforded by the acquisition of knowledge or by the appreciation of what is beautiful, let us accept these pleasures as the gifts of a heavenly Father. Let us go forth joyfully, enthusiastically, to make the world subject to God. And in that sense, 
It doesn't matter who built the first city or who developed the tent or the lyre or the iron instruments or the tractor or the internet. We can utilize these things. We can make improvements or alternatives to them and so on. To do so is in part to fulfill the creation mandate. And in so doing, we're going to be rubbing shoulders with non-believers. We're going to be buying the products that they produce. We'll use some of their ideas and benefit from some of their advances. And that's okay. In our unison reading this morning, we read from 1 Corinthians 5, and we saw there that it's completely fine to rub shoulders in this world and have dealings with non-believers. If we want to avoid that altogether, we can't do it. Paul says that if you wanted to do this altogether, you would have to go out of this world. Now, I understand that there may be times in which, for ethical reasons, you might choose to boycott a company or at least to strategically shop in one place rather than another. There are certainly times and places where that can be a legitimate choice to make. But at the same time, there's a certain level at which we have to understand that buying from the wicked and selling to the wicked is just going to be part of life here in a world that is in rebellion against God. You might avoid some of it, but you can't avoid all of it. And that's okay. And I think that's part of the reason why we have a verse like 1 Corinthians 5.10 given to us in the Bible. We're, we're going to have to rub shoulders with unbelievers, and it's okay. It's not a sin to do so. And this brings us then to our third point, which is call upon the name of the Lord. As we've looked at things, we've seen that it's all right to participate in the development of technology and civilization and the arts and so on, and that we can even do so with unbelievers. But in doing so, we need to recognize that as good and as helpful as these endeavors may be, these things are not ultimate. It is possible to gain the whole world and yet forfeit soul. One commentator noted here from Genesis 4 that material progress is one thing, moral soundness is another. Just as in the old world before the flood, material progress was accompanied by moral and spiritual deterioration, so in our own day there are many signs that material progress is being accompanied by moral retrogression and corruption. And isn't that true? These advancements that we see here in Genesis 4 were made in days of wickedness and violence and great evil. And the same is true today. There has been an amazing amount of technological progress in the last century or two. But there's also been a lot of wickedness. And what this means is not that technology must be disposed of, but rather that we must learn to imitate what we see here of this godly line here in Genesis 4. Let's look again there to the close of verse 26. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this sentence can be translated in various ways, but whether you would take it in the sense of men calling upon the name of the Lord in the sense of calling on the Lord in prayer and public worship, or whether you would want to take it in the sense of men being called by the name of the Lord. Either way, the implication seems clear enough that there is some genuine piety going on here, namely that these people loved and trusted the Lord such that they called upon his name or else were called by his name and thus were called the people of God in some way. As helpful 
And as good as the developments seen in the line of Cain were, they were not nearly so important as this simple piety that we see right here. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The developments of the world and the developments of civilization appear to offer much, and indeed they do for a little while. But again, Hebrews 13, 14, here we do not have a lasting city. Whatever you like about the city or whatever you like about the rural areas, it's, it's, it's fading away. It's fading away. John says, 1 John three seventeen, the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And the will of God for you, his will of command is this that you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. His will is that you call upon his name. As we heard from, uh, from our brother John in that New Testament reading from Romans 10, Romans 10, 12 and 13, the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. What we need to realize is whatever progress we may make here in this world, materially, socially, in the arts, in technology, whatever. One day, we're going to die. One day, we're going to have to stand before the Lord. And what will matter on that day is not how good you were in the arts, not how much technology you knew and had mastered. What's going to matter is whether you called upon the name of the Lord or not. And I beg you today to join with the godly of all time and to call upon the name of the Lord, because it's only Christ who can save you from this decline into wickedness, which we see here in the line of Cain. It's only Christ who can prevent these greater and greater evils from engulfing your own soul and your own heart and your own life. The same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would be those who join with the godly of all time, that we would call upon your name, that we would repent of our sins, that we would look to Christ who was crucified for us, and that we'd be saved from our sins, that we would have fellowship with you through Christ. We praise you for that great promise of the gospel, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.